A little bit different the last couple of weeks without a live pianist. The, we had a schedule of the pianist who couldn't be here today for sickness, and Betty is um, still getting to visit family on the west side, and we want her to be there. Uh, but if those voices sounded familiar on the song recordings, that is from 2020 when we were adapting and overcoming and we recorded the choir when we could still have people meet together. And there are some voices on there that are not with us anymore. Um, and so it's kind of joyous, even if it is a recording. Kind of special. So I won't say more than that or I'll start crying. Um, we are going to read Matthew, but it's actually Matthew... 2. That was just to trick you, apparently. So it's Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15 uh, today. And if you want to head that way in your Bibles, it's Matthew 2, not 3. Uh, and and we are, we've been having this series called Outcasts and looking how the Christmas stories are beautiful and wonderful. And we usually focus on the joy, joy, good news of great joy. But they're also filled with, if we were in a difficulty, hard stuff. Families being forced to move, uh, a king who wants to kill people and does end up killing babies. I mean, really, really hard stuff. And so the goal of this series was to reintroduce the, the characters of the Christmas story and some of the situations to the Christmas story and, and particularly draw attention to how God included what the world might call outcasts or marginal people into the center of the story, into his family, because that's what God does. He calls those who are outside and says, come on into my family. I want to forgive you. I want to have life with you. So he called in the unclean shepherds. He called in the wise men from other lands, right? He calls in this young couple, Mary and Joseph, to be part of the story. And then the Son of God himself comes out of perfect heaven and comes down to earth. God uses what, what appears to be marginal by the world standards and brings it into the center of his story. And so Christmas is not really a comfortable set of stories. Christmas, I hope you, you came away thinking Christmas is a shocking set of stories of people shaken from life as they know it into something far more bewildering and grand, right? Think of Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's uh, parents who, that's part of the Christmas story. They, were, they weren't able to have children late in, in their life. Suddenly they have a child and this child is going to be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. It's good, but it's shocking and life-changing. And the Christmas story is still shockingly good news, and it's life-changing, and it doesn't allow us to stay right where we're at. So let's, let's pray as we come to Matthew 2, our scripture for today. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. You are the author and perfecter of our life. You alone should we rightly fear. You alone should we fully follow. You alone should our life be founded on, for you are the rock. So Lord, may we have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that rejoice at your truth. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would cause these people here, the folks online, to be praying for themselves that they would really listen, really hear what you are saying, that they would see this as an act of worship here, that they would be changed by your word, your truth, Lord. I pray that they would also pray for me and other preachers that we would rightly declare your word, that it would be believed and that hearts would deepen and hearts would be transformed to do your will. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2, just a little bit of big context of the Gospel of Matthew, this book about good news, uh, good news about Jesus, written, the church says, by Matthew the disciple. 
he was writing to a Hebrew audience, to a Jewish audience. There's some historical sources out there that say that the first version of Matthew may have even been written in Hebrew. We only have surviving uh, copies of it in Greek, but there's a tradition, a very old tradition in the Christian church that says that, there, that it was first written in Hebrew to, to scholarly, biblical Jewish people who would have been, if they were gonna be convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, they would need to see all kinds of prophecies fulfilled, and they would need to see how Jesus was the one who was supposed to be, be coming, greater than Moses, greater than all the prophets, the one to come. And so Matthew wrote this gospel in order to prove to his own people, he was a Jewish person, to prove that yes, Jesus is the greater one. He is the son of God who has come into the world. And so he has all along the way, if you read the whole gospel of Matthew, he has stories and he's saying, and this fulfilled that from the Old Testament, and this fulfilled that over and over again. And so we have today this little scripture of Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. And it's going to kind of take on that feel of Matthew writing to, to show his readers, his audience, how Jesus, even when he was just a, a little baby or a toddler with Mary and Joseph, was fulfilling the scriptural plan, the prophecies. So let's hear the word. Matthew 2, starting with verse 13. Let's stand if you're able, unless you're going to pass out for the gospel, the reading of the gospel. Let's stand if you're able. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Matthew here, right at the end, out of Egypt I called my son. This is a quote from Hosea, an Old Testament book, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. If you have a study Bible, you can see probably that connection, or you're using a Bible app, you can see that. Out of Egypt I called my son. But this is not one of these scriptures that the scholars were looking and saying, well, if I'm going to believe in the Messiah, he's got to fulfill Hosea 11, verse 1. This is what we'd call an obscure reference, right? This is what the early Christians, like Matthew, looked back and said, okay, we know that Mary and Joseph had to take baby Jesus or child Jesus in Egypt. Okay, that happened. So where is that in our Hebrew scriptures? Where is that? And then they look back and they say, well, it's all over the place. The people of God, the, the, the Jewish people are people who were rescued out of Egypt, but then there's specific scriptures like the one in Hosea that he quotes, out of Egypt I called my son. And so when they look back on what we now call the Old Testament with, with Jesus Gospels, is what one of my professors used to say, Jesus Gospels, he looked, he looked back and you see through the lenses of Jesus that he's, he's on every page of Scripture in the Old Testament. And it was Jesus himself that taught the early church to do this. The resurrected Jesus on, on the road to Emmaus, the road to Emmaus story, he, before the disciples that he was walking with even knew that it was Jesus, he showed them how all the Old Testament stories pointed to Jesus, to himself. Right? And so the early church kind of adopted this mindset that, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the whole ongoing story. He is the one that brought us out of Egypt because he's God, but he himself had to flee to Egypt and be called out of it. He's, in a sense, paralleling the whole story of Israel or the people of God. He had to, to, he had to also be in captivity uh, and called out of it. 
So it's really interesting. It's really connecting God's history with Israel and Egypt and, and connecting that to Jesus. And we can see here that the, the salvation project that God is doing is not just something he decided, you know, uh, 10 months before he, he made Mary pregnant or something, uh, I'm gonna pick this real nice lady in Nazareth and make her, uh, you know, the mother of the, the Savior. You know, Mary, Mary's a fine lady and God picked her. She's a, a person of uh, faith and stature, but God was planning to do his plan of salvation long before, right? In the series, we've seen scriptures from, from Isaiah, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And so the salvation project has long been a plan of God, a story of God creating a people, the people of Israel, that are going to themselves have an es- a story of escape or salvation where, where they overcome darkness with God's help. He brings them out of the darkness of slavery and eventually into a land flowing with milk and honey, right? He leads them out of captivity and death, out of uh, bondage and into freedom, and that's, that's, that's just foreshadowing what God is going to ultimately do with Jesus Christ. So in this story, this story that we call the Bible, right, the whole Bible, the whole Bible is this unified story of God's salvation project that eventually, amazingly, gets to us. Like, that's why we're here, because we believe that God is a saving God who came into the world to save us, and he's been doing this through human history ever since we chose sin, ever since we've been fallen as as we believe, and, and so he's been choosing to do that, and that's why we're here, right? And at times, if you've read the Bible, and I encourage you to read through the Bible this year for Abel, or at least read through the, the New Testament, but at times as you read through the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, right, it, it looks like the thread of God's salvation plan is getting really thin. Like if you read the, the period of kings, some of the kings in the Old Testament, you're like, oh my gosh, they're worshiping false gods the, the people of God are worshiping false gods. They're doing all kinds of things. They're, they're going along with nations nearby. They're practicing things like child sacrifice. And, and so you're, you're reading these stories, and if you've had this experience, it's like, is, you know, thank goodness we know the end, right? But, but in the real time, when it was being really experienced, is the thread of God's salvation, his salvation promises to bring light and, and relationship with him to the whole world, is it really gonna survive how depraved human beings can get? Right? If the people of God that have had all these direct miracles and been, been rescued out of slavery, if they themselves can, can get off track and start worshiping idols and even be part of child sacrifice, is there, is there hope for God's plan to remain alive? But you keep reading, right? You keep reading and God always keeps a remnant alive. And sometimes it is just a bare, thin thread. Uh, Spurgeon, I think, called it the red thread that goes through scripture, right? And sometimes it, it's kept alive by a, a, a non-Israelite, right? Uh, you, you could look at the book of Ruth, for example, if you want. Or, but sometimes it looks like in, in the book of Esther, which is a book that doesn't even mention the name of God. It's a book written when the Jews are in captivity. And in that book, it's literally, the, the, the tension in that book is that all the Jewish people are gonna get killed. But then God uses this faithful young woman, Esther, and the thread of salvation continues with one young teenage girl standing up and going into the king's presence, which should have got her killed. But she does it. And her and Matt Mordecai are used by God in the story of Esther to keep the story alive. And so you look back, and my point is that it just 
is this story really just a human story, this unlikely story that eventually results in Jesus coming into the world? Like Jesus' lineage, if you look back at it, it just barely hangs on <laughs> sometimes. But it does. But it does always hang on. And so it, it sometimes looks very thin. And then you get to the end of where there are no more what we call Old Testament books anymore. And you get to 400 years or so before Jesus when the, the people of Israel enter what's called a time of silence or prophetic silence when there are no more uh, books being written. It just seems like God isn't raising up prophets like he used to. And there's just silence. And, and the people of Israel get dominated by one empire and then another empire. And by the time we get to the time of Jesus' birth, they're dominated by the biggest, baddest, meanest empire that's existed that would exist for a few hundred more years, and that's the Roman Empire. And it looks like, what hope could God do to bring one little light in the midst of this gigantic empire that at that time was just spreading in every direction, right? What hope could a young couple, Joseph and Mary, what could they do against powers like Herod and Caesar? So when we read the Christmas stories and we realize that, that it, it just looks so darn unlikely, <laughs> it makes it even better, right? Because it just looks like Rome is telling everybody we are gonna bring the world salvation, just like every government does. We still do it. It's a false gospel when America does it or any other country does it, when China does it, when Rome did it. Countries are not the salvation of the world. God can use countries to do good, but they are not salvation. Rome used to say, we will bring Pax Romana, right? We will bring the peace of Rome. It would be better for you. Never mind that we will tax you into oblivion and you won't really have freedom, right? And your kids will have to go off to a war that we want them to go off to. But we will bring you peace. But then this guy comes in the world and says, well, I'm going to bring you peace, but not like the world brings. Jesus came and he said, I'm going to bring peace, but not like Rome is promising. He came to bring peace between us and God, right? He came to bring us the peace of knowing who we truly are and that we are truly beloved and that we are truly forgiven. A peace that the world cannot give with all of its arms and all of its power and all of its wealth and all of its supposed goodness that's not really goodness. Jesus came to be truly good and bring us true peace. So, he came to be the real king. And yet it's a very weird way to start, right? He is greeted by these wise men who bring gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they literally bow down before him. We read that story, right? If you were here, we read the story, and we tried to think about how it would sound and feel and smell and, and, and just the room being filled with these, these men who are normally the most powerful men in the room, and then they come before a baby or a toddler, and they bow down before him. And they pull off their horses or their mules or their camels or whatever they came with and they're just laying gold and they're laying frankincense and they're laying myrrh at the feet of a, of a human that can't speak yet because God had spoken to their hearts and said, there is one being born into this world that is the king that's gonna be of the kingdom that reigns forever. And so these outsiders, these outcasts, these magi believed that the threat of salvation that somehow they were told about, the scriptures must have got to these men who lived hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, but they, they believed that the true God's promises have come true, and this is him, right? 
And so I want you to be encouraged by the Christmas story. That though Christmas was 2,000 years ago, and it seems like, okay, obviously Jesus did an amazing thing, right? But sometimes when we compare that salvation story against the bigness and the difficultness of the, the news stories of the day, the wars of the day, or the tragedies of the day, it can seem like, is God winning? Right? But I want to encourage you that God always wins. He just wins in a different way than the world. Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, they were faithful believing Jewish people, married for decades, unable to have children, faithfully doing what God had called them to do. And just when it seemed like impossible to have a child, God gives them a child. Mary and Joseph put in an impossible situation where it looks like Mary's been unfaithful, but she knows she hasn't. And it looks like to Joseph... He can't marry the girl he's supposed to because it'll bring shame on him. But that wasn't the situation, right? The shepherds who are just young boys or young men who aren't really invited into things because the religious people see them as unclean and unworthy and they work seven days a week and they can't practice Sabbath appropriately and all that stuff. And then suddenly the whole angelic host is there telling them the good news of great joy and they get to be the first witnesses to the baby king. It just seems so unlikely. All these outsiders or these people that are not on the inside of worldly power, they're the ones who are on the inside of God's story. And so I want to say to us, are you on the inside of God's story or do you care more about the worldly power? That's not really the big story. In 2024, you are going to be so tempted, all of you are going to be so tempted to believe the gospel of the world. I'm not saying don't be involved or stick your head in the sand, but just make sure your life, your heart, your decisions are guided by that, that king who became a baby for you. And he's the only one that's gonna bring true peace, right? I don't know what 2024 holds, and I'm just not super excited about it. I should be, because <laughs> God's in control and God's good, but I think we're gonna have tough times. But will the church say, whatever may come, we're going to continue the tradition of the good church, the true church throughout history that has said, we worship one king, Jesus. And we're here to love him and love others, even if they're different than us. And we're going to love even if they kill us, even if they persecute us. Because he said, blessed are you when you're persecuted in my name's sake. And why did he say things like that? Because I think Joseph and Mary taught him things like that. I think they taught him from a young age. I think the Holy Spirit obviously helped them to parent Jesus. He, he, they were persecuted from his birth on, right? They had to move right off the bat. Even before the birth, they had to get to Bethlehem, but then they had to get to Egypt. Jesus wasn't taught as a young kid by Mary and Joseph, hey, you're, you're God's son. Everything's going to work out for you. <laughs> he was taught, God has a special purpose for you. It's going to be tough. We had to take you to Egypt before you could talk. You probably don't remember it, Jesus. It was really, really hard. We had to f cut out a niche in that community. There were Jewish people that lived in Egypt, but we had to figure out how to live there. It was difficult. But God was with us, and he got us through. Jesus learned lessons as a human being, though he was the son of God. He also learned lessons from these faithful 
parent figures in his life. He learned that his family had to, es had to literally escape death of a tyrant, Herod, right? In order to keep the story, God's story of salvation moving forward. So for me, I want to just be real honest that this story brings deep encouragement for our church, for our local church. Our church is not the same as it was five years ago. We are smaller, we are different, we have less families, we have less kids. We had two kids at Christmas Eve. We used to have kids halfway into the aisle on Christmas Eve for the children's moment. And I, I, in my flesh, I can be tempted to, to say, how, how will God provide now that we seem to be an older church again or people seem to not want to worship as regularly as they used to? And I can get into all kinds of despair about that, right? Or I can look to the word, to the scriptures, to the Christmas stories here particularly, and learn a lesson that I need to learn again and again. God didn't stop working. God's never going to stop working. Even when we don't see it, the, the, the challenge of being a Christian is saying, God, where are you at work? Maybe you're not at work at the ways I want you to be or the ways you used to be five years ago, but guaranteed, he's always working. So are there ways we need to change? Are there ways we need to be uncomfortable? Are there places we need to move to that may not be easy, but that's the story God is calling us to? That might mean you find yourself serving in a ministry this upcoming year that you didn't think you'd serve in. Because we are called to do it. We are called to be his people here. We're called to share the good news of Jesus with every age group. That's who he's calling us to be. The Christmas stories are not perfectly comfortable, and being a Christian is not perfectly comfortable. So we see that he goes out ahead of us. Mary and Joseph were sent to Egypt, but he had gone out ahead of them, right? He had prepared for the Magi to give them plenty of finances so they would be prepared, but they had to go with faith to Egypt. I, I can't imagine being Joseph and being in that situation. Uh, sometimes I I can't even enjoy the first day or two of vacation because I'm thinking about all the plans and stuff. I don't know if you guys are like this. Vacation should just be enjoyable from second one, right? But not for me because day one, day two, I'm still like uh, frazzled and like thinking about, you know, it's just stupid, but that's how I am. And if I was Joseph, and this is not vacation, <laughs> this is not vacation to go to Egypt for them, I would be thinking, oh, how am I going to work? When is this gold going to run out? Are they going to just take it from us? We're not citizens down there. Will we find a Jewish community down there, right? And, and questions I can't even fathom. So many unanswered questions, so many concerns. But you know what? What it comes down to for them and for us, God told them what they needed to know. He doesn't tell us everything. We don't need to know everything. I don't know exactly what's going to happen in 2024. I can pretend like I know, but I should not be guided by my fears or my anxieties. I should be guided by my faith that God gives, right? That God is good, God is in control. He intentionally wanted me to live in this age as he wanted you to live. He has placed us here. He has given you your gifts. He has given you your connect connections to other people. This is not an accident. And just like Joseph and Mary, he has provided for them so they could go forward with the plan that he laid out for them. And they could, be, they could be guided by their fears and their anxieties of the unknown in Egypt, or they could just trust, hey, the angel of God told us to go to Egypt. God has got this. We will faithfully just figure out each day the challenges that come. Each day has worries of its own. They probably learned, and then they passed it down to Jesus, right? See, God is the same God then as now. God's plan then was for the young Jesus and his family to experience living outside of Israel, 
to experience living as a refugee, to be driven out of their own land by a power-crazed leader who was willing to kill infants like Drug lords are today, and people are trying to escape that, right? He was, he was driven out of their land by a power-crazed leader who was just nuts, Herod, right? He was just nuts on power. And God, God allowed them to escape to Egypt. Now, historical note, many Jews lived in Egypt at the time. That doesn't mean it would have been complete, completely easy, it would, but it wouldn't have been completely alien to them. It's, it still would not have been an easy home. Right? And I think the big point of the Christmas story is that God's son, Jesus, came into this world that is not the ideal. And God is calling his people to be part of his kingdom here on earth, but to be in the world, just not of the world, not guided by the world's fears and false identities. And it's not going to be ideal. It's not going to be easy sometimes. But it wasn't easy for our founder, for our savior, for our Lord. He was cast out of heaven, but he did it with his own free will. He chose to come down here and take on human nature and even the nature of a servant. Let's remember this season and all year that our Lord chose to be cast out of perfect heaven. We cannot even imagine what that feels like, right? But not just that he came to be cast out of perfect heaven and land on some you know, royal crown in a palace somewhere. But he came down and he lived as a vulnerable refugee infant because he was coming into the world that had problems like that. He was coming into this world to make a people who would live differently than Herod's and the other powers that live so focused on self. He was coming into the world to, 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 bring, to bring wholeness and salvation, to bring his outcast children, of which I hope you include yourself, a former outcast. He wanted to bring your, his lost children, his lost sheep, back home. And he did it. He did it if you believe it. And I would encourage you, do you believe this, that, that the Son of God came out of heaven, at least part of his mission was for me, for you. He did not want you outcast, outside of the story. He wanted you inside as much as he wanted the shepherds to be in the story, as much as he wanted the magi to be in the story, as much as he wanted Joseph to be Jesus' earthly parent. He wanted you to be part of his forever family. Do you believe that good news of great joy? It is absolutely true. And you can experience the joy of it when you say, Lord, I believe that. I don't deserve that, but I believe that by your gracious goodness, you wanted me in your story. You wanted me to be different now, forgiven now, but you want me to be in your family forever. This is the good news of Christmas, right? The Lord is with us. And friends, nothing now or in 2024, nothing on earth or in the heavens, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. For he has already overcome all that has separated us from his perfect presence, us from living in his kingdom forever. So rejoice, my friends, no matter what happens. Rejoice, I'll say it again like Paul said, I'll say it again, rejoice, right? Because God was cast out of heaven so that we can no longer be an outcast. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so very good, so good. <laughs> may we believe it. May, may you fill your people with joy as we 
reflect on your goodness, on your sacrifice. And I pray if there's anyone in, uh, hearing this message today, whether it's right now live in person or online or somebody listening to the recording in the future and they have never surrendered to the simple truth that you, you came here to rescue us and to be our forever king, to die for our sin, to conquer death, to bring new life. If there's somebody out there, Lord, who hasn't believed that yet, I pray that your spirit would grab them right now and they would simply say, I believe, God, in what Jesus has done for me. I give you my life. And I pray for those who already believe that they would connect with that new believer wherever they're at. God, thank you. Thank you for the good news of great joy coming into this very not ideal world. Going through the difficult suffering you had to go through. But for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross. And it just amazed me that that joy was that we would be invited in. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.